face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national and international challenges we face. We are recording this on November 13th, 2020. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which distributes content on labor, political economy, arts and culture. And today I'm very excited to speak with Professor Robert Sprinkle. Professor Sprinkle works at the intersection of politics and the life sciences. He studied history at Dartmouth College and medicine at the University of Cincinnati and trained clinically at the University of Virginia and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dallas. He's a diplomat of both the American Board of Family Medicine and the American Board of Pediatrics and a fellow of the respective clinical academies. He maintains current certification in both specialties and medical licensure in four states. He earned his second doctorate, the PhD, at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, Princeton University, where for two years he was supported by a MacArthur Foundation Social Science Research Council Fellowship in International Peace and Security. And his first graduate school summer he spent as a refugee camp physician on the Thai-Cambodian border. So with that, uh, you said I could call you Rob. I, Rob, thank you so much for coming on today. Sure, thanks for having me. So could you talk a little bit more about your background and how you first got interested in policy and why others should care about public policy? Well, I, I, I've always been interested in policy. I was a history major in college, as, as, you, as you mentioned, but also in college, I became very impressed by how untenable my antipathy towards science was, and I really had to deal with it. Uh, I had to understand the empirical world to understand history, frankly. Uh, I had to understand biology to understand history. Uh, so how to do that? Well, I thought, uh, you know, maybe I could take a decade or so and uh, study medicine, and that, that studies humanity, and that was a, sort of a good package. Uh, I wasn't... I wasn't very good at this initially. I was uh, really just kind of hanging on, but I, I got better at it and I got better at it than I had intended to, so much so that uh, it was hard to get taken seriously outside medicine, which I found to be very strange. Uh, so eventually I decided to return, at least in part, to balance myself out uh, more accurately uh, by doing it the hard way. So I uh, ended up doing a, had an offer of a fellowship to uh, do a doctorate at, uh, at Princeton at, at what 
until very recently was the Woodrow Wilson School that now has cleaned itself up and is simply the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And I concentrated there in international affairs, uh, just you know, similar to your own concentration actually, because that's where the big ideas were, the big books, um, uh, that's, where, that's where history really mattered. Many other, many other policy fields, they don't think it does. Um, so what I do now is um, a bunch of different things um, all over my, my various interests. Um, and uh, what I have in recent years been studying more than other things is uh, what you might call policy history. Uh, it's very instructive. How did we get in our current predicament? Why haven't we solved this problem before? Um, what's really going on here? Do we, do we actually understand where we came from? Do we understand how we got in our current uh, uh, situation. It's a bit like paleoclimatology, except uh, the uh, <laughs> it's not all so ancient, but the concept is the same. I really appreciate that emphasis on history. I've seen a lot of economists who have no understanding of where their ideas came from, and their history sometimes ends in the 1980s of everything kind of focusing on the statistical modeling and, and removing the whole idea of production from economics and physical production. Yeah, don't get me started. I mean, that, that's um, <laughs> right. It, uh, you're, you're, you're so right. And, and history as well with, with public policy and, and the international aspects of, of everything that we develop in our nation state has been forged through the, this international historical development, whether it's in, through the transatlantic, Asia. Um, and, and oftentimes we're, we hear people talking about looking back on how policies were made and they're not in the context of the times because of that, that lack of history. So yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, also if you, if you consider a, a, you know, a current problem, say you know, the recent 44 day war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You have to understand why these very similar people hate each other. What, what went wrong? Where did, this, where did this happen? How did this happen? Um, uh, is it, uh, can it be unwound? Uh, can it be understood differently? Uh, after a while, everybody gets so confused about how things really happened. Uh, that they um, they stop thinking about it. They 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 just bear the enmities that it, uh, uh, that uh, are attached to it. But they uh, you know it's it's too complex for them, and so as you know it, it's as if they're reaching into a big bag of complexity and pulling out a simplicity, which might be, well, we always hate these people, or they shouldn't be here, or they, you know, they took something, I think, that didn't we used to own it, that, that sort of thing. So even there, I, I just find it, um, I find the emphasis, the transactional emphasis, the, 
the data set correlational emphasis that permeates policy to be rather self-defeating, uh, frankly. Yeah, and another aspect of history is geography. And yes. if you oh, look yeah. at the map, you can start seeing very quickly, for instance, the conflict uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia and everything that's going on with pipelines as well as yeah, yeah. going, you know, religion, yeah. religion and all the other its complexities, as you mentioned. Yeah, right. It is. So you teach a course on disease, disaster and development. And yeah. I'm interested in exploring what Biden should do, what the Biden administration should do uh, in their response to COVID-19. Uh, Chief of Staff uh, Ron Klain was uh, working under the Obama administration on the Ebola response, and or he's now the new Chief of Staff for uh, Biden. Um, but if you were brought in to advise this administration, what specifically should they be focusing on, and what policies should we be implementing going forward? Right. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think I will be brought in to advise. Uh, but, you know, they should, uh, there, there are lots of ways to answer that question. Uh, they should first, I think, understand the opportunities that have been missed since January. Actually, the opportunities that have been missed since SARS-1 and since MERS. Um, I mean, there was a coronavirus vaccine ready for production uh, made in response to the first SARS and nobody would fund it. Uh, so they should under, not, not that it would have, you know, matched the spike protein on, on uh, SARS-CoV-2, but still it would have been a start. So quickly, just to pause there, SARS-1 was in 2002 about, was that around there? And then MERS yeah. about 2007, 2009 yeah, on right. there? Yeah. And yeah, so, around, around there, what yeah. what what's the background on the the vaccine research? Well, was it, it a, a international consortium or U.S. or? You know, I it, it presumably was much bigger and more detailed than I know. But the but but the one part I know about is uh, 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 an effort to uh, produce a vaccine against SARS one, which at the time was just SARS. There was no two. Um, and this was uh, headed up by uh, Peter Hotez, who's now uh, uh, Dean of the National School of Tropical Disease at Baylor. He's a big cheese. I mean, he's not, you know, he's very well known. And uh, he couldn't, you know, SARS-1 had ended, only 800 people had died. Um, and uh, yeah, it was old news and nobody was interested. Uh, not that it would have turned out to be what we needed. However, it's certainly the case that uh, well, that we have been suspecting, and just this week there was new data suggesting that uh, uh, children have a lot of neutralizing antibody to similar coronaviruses, and um, it it's helpful. Uh, so there's a big overlap there. A anyway, they, they should, the new people should understand opportunities missed since January 
and should resolve to miss no remaining opportunity. And I mean no remaining opportunity. Um, they have to interrupt viral transmission and they cannot wait to immunize 7 billion people twice. There's only one vaccine in the works that might be a one-shot vaccine. Um, all the rest are at least two. They can't wait for that. And the good news is that interrupting viral transmission isn't that hard. Uh, but the, the reason, I mean, when I say they must not miss another opportunity, it's also to say that there's not a minute to lose, not a minute to lose. When you're facing an epidemic that's entering, we're already in an exponential growth phase. You have to do everything and you have to do it at once. The goal is to prevent exponential growth. Uh, you know, it's, that means there's a squared term in the equation, right? Uh, you have to prevent that because every day you miss means the, that, the, that the epidemic, then the pandemic, then the local epidemic again, is bigger than it had to be, much bigger than it had to be. This was, this was a great tragedy in the response to AIDS in the early 1980s, where the United States government, for reasons that need not detain us now, uh, didn't do much for a couple of years. And that meant that the ultimate pandemic was going to be much, much larger than it had to be. And boy, you, all you have to do is look at our um, uh, case curve now to see how modest that first experience was when you fit everything onto the same graph. That early experience looks almost like a blip, but it was a transformative disaster. And we're now headed for who knows what. Surely 200,000 cases a day soon, if not already today, you know, or at least on Monday, as you, as everybody knows, reporting these cases uh, is not even throughout the week. Uh, <laughs> it's a strange thing, but it's quite true. So we're looking at that and everyone, every case is an opportunity to create two or three more cases or 20 or 30 more cases. That's the exponential problem. So you, when you're in that phase, you have to do everything at once. And policy people almost uniformly say, well, it's not so bad now. Let's, we'll do something more when it gets to be worse. And um, we don't want to overreact. Well, the time, the only really sensible time to overreact is immediately. So whatever can be done today must be done today. Um, that's the only way you really flatten any curve. So that's, that's another thing. Uh, and, you know, uh, 
how do you do that? How do you really interject viral transmission? Well, we know how to do it. We just, it just hasn't been presented very well. Um, uh, you know, if you really want to know, you'd say, look, we are going to pay each other to stay home. We're going to take care of each other and we're going to pay each other to stay home. We've got a printing press in the basement of the treasury. Interest rates are low. We're just going to do this. We're going to pay each other to stay home for as long as it takes to make it safe. And we're also going to reconsider what the word essential means. I'm not essential. I can work from home. There are a lot of people who are essential. Many of them are undocumented. Many of them live in fear of the Iceman who may cometh. Most of them are people who don't, do not earn high incomes, but boy, they earn those, whatever they get. And we have to understand that it's just totally not fair. There are two ways we can help those people. We, the non-essential people, can stay home. That decreases their exposure. And we can also make sure they're compensated more fairly and that, and that the, the increase in their compensation persists long after the pandemic is over. Also, uh, we, we have all these personal responsibility risk takers these mask reviewer, mask uh, refuser people. Those people, um, there's nothing basically wrong with them, really. They, they may imagine themselves to be libertarian or something, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with them. Uh, but they must be helped to know that their true personal responsibility is to avoid becoming vectors. In other words, to avoid becoming infected. So whatever risk they are willing to take, whatever risk they are eager to laugh away, it doesn't matter. Their real personal responsibility is not to become infected regardless of whether they are, whether they become symptomatic or get sick at all, or get admitted to the hospital or and then up in the ICU or on an extra uh, ECMO machine, extracorporeal membrane oxygenator. That's not the point. Their real personal responsibility is to avoid becoming infected. They are most infectious to others when they are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So this whole business of personal responsibility and personal risk-taking has been comprehensively misunderstood, disastrously misinterpreted, and disgracefully politicized. All right. Also, you know, it's important to know that masking 
works. And it's also important to know why. Um, it decreases spread of virus from pers one person who is infected, who is likely not to know he or she is infected. And that's important, but it also decreases the infective dose that a mask wearer receives. And very often it decreases that inoculum, that infective dose low enough so that the innate immune system can deal with it without ever calling upon the adaptive immune system, the part that produces antibodies. However, interestingly, and this has been suspected from very good animal studies um, done by a researcher in San Francisco, and is also uh, very much borne out epidemiologically. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll just tell, tell the story, the epidemiological story. And this was this was reported a couple of months ago in Japan, which had early cases, you know, early cruise ship, close to China, high risk, um, big problem. It's a mask wearing culture. It's also a personal space respecting culture, but it's also, you know, a hundred and 22 million conscientious people stuck on an accident of plate tectonics in the Northwest Pacific. Population dense, very, if you go to Tokyo. Very dense. Yeah. And, and the subway, you know, enormously, and you need to use the subway, Tokyo and most, most cities. Their death rate per capita, per capita, their death rate is 1 50th of ours. We have 50 times as many dead people per capita as they do. A recent study found a surprisingly high degree of neutralizing prevalence of neutralizing antibody in Japan, as high as 48%, which is actually in the herd immunity range. But these were people who had never been sick. Maybe not even symptomatic. And the concept is that if you wear a mask, not only are you less likely to infect somebody else, but the inevitable virus that will come around the back end of the mask or come, come in the top or in the bottom, whatever, won't have a lot of company. It'll be a, you know, a, a pretty small inoculum, a pretty small infectious dose. And in fact, maybe an infectious dose, but not enough of an infectious dose to cause serious illness or not enough to cause any illness. And that's, it's pretty hard to discount that, um, that interpretation and in animal studies, it's pretty much demonstrated to be the case, which means that this whole concept of the mask, which was 
disrespected initially on various grounds, cultural, aesthetic, political, just nuts, uh, is a big deal. And you look at the other countries that have done very well with this, like Vietnam, Taiwan. Taiwan, yeah. Right. And the Czech Republic, or Czechia is not, now they fashion, they style themselves, in the summer. But they did so well, they thought they were home free. Boy, they were not home free. It's a small country. They're close to everybody else. And they are in terrible trouble now. But they weren't initially. And if they had kept that up, they wouldn't be now. All right. So that that's what I would that's what I would tell them. Well, I want to get into the essential workers and the fact that the people producing our food who are helping to ensure that we have groceries are working a lot of the distribution uh, from, you know, giant to Whole Foods and other supermarkets, yeah. the people moving packages that we need to exist day to day, uh, all essential. And they deserve health care. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit as well, because a lot of these folks well, aren't they, given health care. And yeah. then they also become problematic as well on that. Yeah. And they deserve a living wage and they deserve not to be not to live in fear. And, um, whether it's from immigration people or from from the fellow working next to them in a meat processing plant. Yeah. They deserve that. The the question, though, of trying to ensure that we have full awareness of the scope of the problem. Why? I, I think we still need a testing regime that has yeah. not been put in place yet so that anyone who wants a test at any moment can get a test. And then that test yeah. has a immediate response. So someone can know right when they leave that office that they have a high likelihood or a high unlikelihood that they actually have COVID. And so to do that, though, you may need to test people multiple times. We have 330 million Americans. So if you're testing, you know, every, every few weeks, someone's like, well, let me just double check because I may have been exposed over here. And there's no bar to getting those. And so maybe you need a billion tests of these. And, and then oh, that will allow you to finally get to a point where you have a much greater uh, data understanding of who may have it, who may not, how to quarantine. So in some ways, using the, the Defense Production Act to ensure that we can actually produce these things. And then of course, yeah. uh, the personal protective equipment that it looks like we're gonna have shortages again going into the winter. And then on top of that, we have you know the flu season upon us and we already have taxed uh, medical uh, infrastructure and, and healthcare, health services infrastructure that's gonna further complicate the matter. But I, I think like the testing regime has to be put in place like day one. Yeah, well, we, uh, we, we're doing a lot of tests, I mean, uh, at the moment. So it's possible. The problem with the, there are lots of problems with the tests. There's, there are the um, antigen tests, which are quick. Uh, their receiver operating characteristics are not as good as the PCR, that's the polymerase chain reaction test. But they're quick, and they're pretty good, and they're useful. Uh, they're not use. They're not useful alone, but they're useful as a first step. The PCR tests um, still cost 125 bucks a piece, mm -hmm. and you know this is a big problem at 
colleges. You know, you test thousands of people every week at $125 a piece every week. And that's tough. Uh, that's really very expensive. So this is a problem. We the, the, the testing is a is a is a complicated, very complicated subject now. It's uh, not a solved problem, but it's also the whole the topic is really a tragedy. Um, one 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 thing that is not very well remembered. And I know this because I don't, I keep expecting to hear it, but I don't hear it very often. Is that uh, this virus was in the United States uh, in early January, maybe even, probably even in December, but certainly in early January. And the first inkling of that came from the Seattle flu study, which as, as soon as the uh, the gene sequence, the genome, uh, the sequence genome arrived in the New England Journal January 12th, 15th or something, amazingly quickly. I mean, this, this heralded China's um, uh, entrance as a real life sciences power, that they could do this. As soon as that came out, the Seattle flu study said, well, let's uh, let's uh, make a little test and you know see if we've got any of this in the community. And they did that quickly in a research lab, not a clinical lab, research lab. And uh, they began testing it where they were uh, testing for influenza. And the coronavirus test, I mean, their their community just lit up like a Christmas tree. And they immediately realized that it was here. It wasn't just in nursing homes and there was community spread. They told the CDC and the CDC shut them down. They threatened them with losing their license, getting their grants revoked, all that, if they even told anybody about their finding. Out of political calculations. Well, uh, my guess is that the calculations at that point were not yet political. Uh, the CDC had its own test. It didn't work very well. They didn't know it wasn't going to work, but it didn't. And, and this was a total mess. And, you know, really, it would have been better to have everybody who thought, in every lab that thought it could produce a test to give it a try. It would have been pretty easy to tell which ones were working well or not, and then the best ones could have been adopted. But the CDC's approach was um, really unfortunate. And the reason I bring that up is that was early. Imagine if we had really known what was facing us in the middle of January. It was possible. But we didn't. And then you get into everything else that we've all so far lived through. Yeah. So obviously this pandemic has exposed structural flaws in our system. And to take a step back at the 30,000 foot level on the history of policy, I yeah. 
learned about this Hill Burton Act of 1946 yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. in the last decade or so. And it, it made a lot of sense once I started looking into it, where essentially the Hill Burton Act stated that um, every county should have a hospital with X number of beds per thousand uh, population, X number of nurses, X number of doctors, X number of medical uh, x-ray equipment and those type of things. And then the counties that couldn't afford them through its own tax revenue would get federal subsidies. And I know it wasn't ever fully um, implemented as it was um, intended and we've gone away from that. But the original goal was 4.5 hospital beds per thousand. I think right now the United States is around 2.3. And I, I believe places like Russia are seven, uh, Germany, uh, we're, we're, we're down there at 2.3 with, uh, I think the UK and it, it's, it's pretty low. And what, why I bring this up, um, is to provide the, the framework of what a, an actual functioning, uh, healthcare system may look like in this United States as we're building and, and places that we can invest in with this new administration. And I, uh, my brother's a doctor, one of his friends is a doctor and he, we were going back and forth on Facebook and he, he didn't think that we had any problem with um, the number of beds. Anyone who needs a bed can get a bed. Um, we don't have a doctor nurse shortage. Uh, he was adamant about that. And he does come from a much uh, more right leaning place. So I, I guess, what are your thoughts about policies like um, the Hill Burton Act, a standard of what we need to ensure that we at least have a basic level a floor as you as i'd like to say in our healthcare system and, and do we have issues with shortages well um we certainly have issues with surge capacity and we found that out now there are lots of countries that uh have um, um, very long hospital stays typical in their system japan germany france um, our hospital stays are short. And the reason is because uh, we were trying to uh, decrease uh, uh, costs, trying to decrease the uh, proportion of our total national effort and wealth that was being soaked up by the uh, healthcare system. We didn't consider changing prices or wages or incomes, uh, pay scales for uh, certain types of physicians, for instance. Um, we didn't consider uh, changing the prices of drugs. Uh, we didn't consider any of that seriously. Uh, so we decided to squeeze what seemed squeezable and we ended up shutting down beds shutting down wards um, minimizing stays you'll recall just from this campaign season that amy klobuchar got her start in politics when she was being kicked out of the hospital after a c-section i think um, almost immediately after delivering her daughter and it really, really bothered her. Um, 
the 4.5 uh, beds per uh, thousand, well, that's when uh, uh, women and their babies uh, stayed in the hospital for a week after vaginal delivery, two weeks maybe after a C-section. Um, people came in the hospital the night before rather than the morning of. Um, there are a lot of people who could be admitted to the hospital for reasons that would not be accepted now. How much does it cost to have unfilled beds? Well, um, not necessarily a lot if you're not staffing them. And this is not the first time we've dealt with this issue. Um, it, during the First World War, there was, uh, uh, I mean, our the United States was in, involved just from April 17 to November of 18, but uh, our uh, uh, troops were in combat for only four months. Only four months. It, they walked into a meat grinder though. And they came back to a country uh, with a lot of uh, uh, medical needs uh, and without very much capacity to help them. Science made big strides during the war. Surgery did. Uh, X-rays were becoming available. They'd been discovered in 1895. Uh, and uh, then there was the 1918 flu, 1819 flu, H1N1, the, mis the misnamed Spanish flu. And the hospitals were flooded just overwhelmed. So these were good arguments for expanding. And then the 1920s was a period of economic growth. Um, it's easy to get a loan. A lot of hospitals did expand. They overexpanded. The problem with overexpanding for them was that their ability to service their debt was dependent upon generating revenue from the beds they had built. So they had to fill the beds. And that's where the Blue Cross concept came from in 1929, which was a pre ridiculously cheap prepayment scheme, 50 cents a month initially, 50 cents a month. That was too low. So it was raised from $6 a year to $8 a year, $8 And what kind of health year. insurance access would that give you? Then? Yeah. Uh, well, now nothing. No. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, then it was, you know, 21 days in the hospital, uh, you know, basically carte blanche. Um, so that was a way to fill their bed so they could meet their um, uh, debt service. Then there was the depression when nothing really was being built except for WPA sorts of things. Then the second world war, which was not a consumer economy, obviously. And then 1946, immediately after uh, uh, VJ day, a couple months after VJ day, when Hilburton was uh, produced. And this was a, capitalization scheme to put capital out into the hinterlands 
where nothing really had been done, built, you know, since 1929 or early 30s. That was a good idea. It, it's not the kind of idea that anybody would um, entertain today, but it, it, it built, built a lot of hospitals, but hospitals then were community assets. They were all not-for-profit. They were community assets. They were the foci of community, charity, pride, very different. Uh, and, you know, then we got stuck with this um, healthcare price spiral and uh, an enormous uh, uh, tendency, a strong tendency to over-insure because uh, largely unions could uh, could win concessions and impress their um, their membership by you know with first dollar health insurance, which is really kind of dumb. You don't you want want that first collar. You don't want first dollar health insurance if it's commercial. If you're in a universal health insurance system, then all the dollars are the same. At any rate, um, so they also overbuilt. And then when we started to try to control costs, uh, but were uh, reluctant or persuaded out of trying to control costs where we really needed to, um, we started uh, uh, pressing to uh, through both publicly and privately started to press to decrease utilization decrease utilization that was the key supposedly was to decrease the amount of utilization so make people think twice about going to the hospital raise co-payments so little old ladies think twice even about going to the doctor uh, when they have medicare because they still have to pay the copayment uh, raise a deductible, make these people think twice. Well, you know, other countries that have um, better public health um, outcomes, longer life expectancy, uh, lower costs, and very sophisticated systems don't have a need to do that. They don't do that. Now, as for whether there are too many or too few physicians, uh, there are debates about this, and it's the usual people saying the usual things about each other. It's not even a very gentlemanly or genteel debate, I should say. Uh, it's, it's kind of unsettled. Uh, it's very likely that we have uh, a distribution of careers across specialties. But that's because of the incentives that we have built into the system. Uh, so, you know, a, a really uh, comprehensive reworking here would be, um, would involve many features. If you really wanna know what the key is. Please. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's this. In this will sound strange, but I can explain. Income inequality must be made irrelevant in healthcare. And there are lots of ways to do that. And we haven't done that at all. Um, 
if you do that, then, then that will suppress competition for the business of the better benefited because everybody has the same benefits. That competition is a very expensive competition to win. And it also produces a lot of excess testing, excess imaging, excess all sorts of stuff. So it's very expensive, not only for the physicians and the hospitals involved, but for the patients and for the country. But if you can, if income inequality, I'd say income inequality must be made irrelevant in healthcare. The way it is in Canada, when people go into a hospital or into a doctor's office. However, a little known interesting fact is that Canadian drug benefits, pharmaceutical benefits are not, they don't come from the provinces. They come from employers and they don't need to come from employers. And actually the amount of money in their entire system that goes through any government, provincial or federal or territorial is, is about 70%. The amount of money that goes through any government here is 61%, very similar. And they, so they have a, uh, they have a non-universal discriminatory insurance system for outpatient drugs. So do we, but they do too. So it's, it's not perfect. But in, in many systems uh, that are really quite good, Sweden, you know, Switzerland, that have their own problems, but they don't have our problems. Um, everybody, every patient presents the same financial resources. Imagine overnight, if that were the case, where would you put, where would you put your new clinic, your new hospital? You put it on the south side of town because they need it and they can pay just like anybody else. Your public, your public hospitals would break even, not just break down. It would be a big, big change. It's doable. There are lots of ways to do it. We have never had the nerve to do that. From from just like a intuitive understanding of a for-profit industry, it seems like the incentives though are just all wrong when you have a for-profit motive in healthcare in the sense that the more people are sick, the more money you make. And the the less you have to treat, the more money you make in a, in a lot of ways. And, and the, meaning like the more you can deny care to certain people, the more you can only cover the healthy. Um, now I'm, I'm not, I, I don't think politically it's, it's actually the expedient ideas to like make nationalize everything. I don't think that's that could ever be achieved politically, but it, it seems like at least offering a, an alternative, like an alternative system where you at least have a floor and you open up a Medicare for all system. And so that inequality, the income inequality is at least neutralized a little bit. And we have it somewhat with these, the Medicaid, but then you have some governors ideologically aren't taking the Medicaid and even Medicaid's much under, way too underfunded. And that's not even touching like drug price uh, negotiation. Yeah, right, right. Now, 
just to touch on the uh, the, the profit motive. Uh, th this is a question really in moral economy, um, which is, I dabble a bit in this. And you have it, you know, lots of incentives. You do have a profit, profit incentive. You have a business incentive. You also have prof a professional incentive. Um, the, uh, the most important incentive is the professional one uh, that uh, becomes the conscience of a high percentage of the physicians and nurses and respiratory techs and other people who labor in this industry. These are the people who uh, don't go home at change of shift if their patient is crashing, right? They are absolutely necessary and they're the conscience of the industry, but they're not alone. And there's been an active effort to um, let's say in the case of physicians to convert them from, from physicians to providers, a generic term, one that I never use except in derision. Now, as for all those other incentives that you know are gonna be there because it's a big business or lots of, you know, people make bedpans, they wanna sell them, right? Like, okay, so what do you do? The one kind of competition you cannot safely have is financial competition. And that is uh, just cut out really uh, in a well-run, you know, national system. It's not really... Could you explain financial comp competition? Well, say in the managed care era, you know, where you had people who, or people, you had uh, HMOs, even though they didn't necessarily maintain health, but uh, a managed care organization uh, that would entice people to join up, then lock them in a network, uh, then be tempted to refuse to cover anything that they could maybe describe as experimental. And that phenomenon I call delivery, delivery reluctance, right? Um, there's also induced demand, there's uh, also demand reluctance. Patients exhibit demand reluctance, they don't wanna go to the doctor. They don't want to have their gallbladder taken out. And even if they have it taken out once, they don't want to have it taken out twice. You know, I mean, they, they would prefer to go fishing, frankly. Um, economists don't get that. They think that if the price of healthcare is zero, then the demand will be infinite. They seem to believe this. I don't know what planet they learned that on. At any rate, uh, during the managed care era, you had a lot of this, um, um, uh, you know, getting people to sign up and then not delivering what they thought you were going to, thought would be delivered. And th this was a way to make money, uh, to compete financially with other similar entities. Um, that sort of thing is, it's not, it's really not necessary. 
uh, I mean, the, the Medicare system uh, very substantially prevents that. That's not entirely, but very substantially. It, I mean, it is, it is quite doable. You need global budgets, but you know, heck, you know, Maryland has global budgets for hospitals. It has had for a long time. And Maryland doesn't have public hospitals because everybody's got to go to one of the hospitals that we do have. And it's interesting, right? At any rate, um, it's a complicated sector, but in order to, to uh, make it begin to untwist itself, uh, you have to start with the by correcting the most fundamental disincentives. And that most fundamental disincentive is what I call exposure avoidance. Nobody wants to be exposed to bad business. They're, they're interested in competing for good business, but they want to avoid bad business. And it's easy to do because you know what parts of town are gonna to have a lot of bad business. You know what the, what the uninsured people probably look like. They don't, they don't look like they shop at Brooks Brothers, right? You can tell even if you don't ask. Um, and there are neighborhoods where, you, where you'd much prefer to be for that reason. And, you know, that's gonna remain the case as long as poor people are likely to be poorly insured or uninsured. And, and, and until, that, until that comprehensively ends so that there's no such thing as bad business, we're not gonna un start untwisting the private system. Again, there, there's more than one way to do it, but we have chosen no way to do it. And just, uh kind of refine my critique. I, I think I do not want to critique the service providers, spe specifically the laborers, the nurses, the doctors, the technicians, and even you need the hospital infrastructure. It's just the, that whole insurance aspect that is between the patient and the service provider, it seems like it's taking a bigger and bigger private tax away from uh, funds that should be going to the doctors and things like that. Yeah, yeah. However, I would say that uh, if you look at the wage rate of, for instance, um, in our country, um, uh, our proceduralists um, are very highly paid. Our primary care people are paid more highly than the proceduralists in other competing advanced industrial countries with universal systems. So I, you, you shouldn't, you know, doctors used to drive Buicks, now they drive BMWs. And a, a lot of them want to lengthen their BMW from the three series to a five to a seven, right? So they, you know, they need some attention to I, I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, do you have a couple more minutes? Just to, yeah, yeah, that's uh, plenty of time. Yeah, okay, no problem. Yeah, I'm on. I'm I'm here under house arrest. So, <laughs> so. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. And my father only drove Buicks, by the way. There uh, you go. The right. funny funny story in itself. So, taking a another kind of um, as we we start to wrap this up, looking at the public policy of government in 
public investment in biomedical research and biomedical sciences. And my critique, or at least one of the critiques that um, I've, I've listened to and sounds reasonable is that we're spending, as a nation, a lot of public funding is going into biomedical research at the universities, uh, through the CDC, and it's often in partnership with um, pr the private sector, who also has tremendous capacity in, uh, in science driver technology to help us doing this research and to discover new uh, pharmaceuticals and, and new uh, medical uh, tools and, and instruments. And my question is, with this publicly funded research, it oftentimes gets patented and controlled by the private entities that helped partner with the government to develop it, but then they end up owning it and then kind of selling our public research back to us at a profit. And so I guess just taking a, a step back, where, where should the US government invest in biomedical in the coming decade? And also what's kind of the question of how do we negotiate better with the private sector? Or do you think there is even an issue at all? Well, there's an issue. Uh, this is what I call uh, the scientific subsidy. And this, uh, there are a lot of well-intentioned efforts to um, optimize things, and they haven't worked out very well. The Bayh-Dole law, for instance, uh, uh, was a, a scheme to basically give away uh, federally held patents to uh, corporations that would uh, uh, develop them for, uh, for the market. What, what was the name of that? The... By Birch Bay and Bob Dole okay. were the co-sponsors. And um, it's Bay is B-A-Y-H. Uh, at any rate, <clears throat> uh, you know, there, there are provisions that allow the government to march in and retake something that's not being used. No one has ever marched in anywhere. Uh, that option, which is which is right there in the law, has has never been used. There's no pricing control, um, and there is there's so many ways for private entities to get uh, commercial control over unused ideas. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but. Uh, the consequences are often kind of ugly, frankly. Uh, now, as for your, your question, where should we invest in, in biomedically? That depends on what kind of country we want to be. Uh, we have a lot of money because we borrowed it from Europe and China and other places, but we can pay the debt service. So supposedly a macroeconomist would tell you that's perfectly fine. If you don't think that's perfectly fine, you suffer from monetary illusion. Um, ben Bernanke thinks that. Um, I took his course in graduate school. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we spend a lot of money on a lot of stuff. 
um, here's a here's a prospect that I would I would suggest. Um, what if we were to say to ourselves, you know, a good hypothesis is a terrible thing to waste. And it should never again be the case that we have um, investigators with good ideas that get good reviews uh, at the NIH or the NSF that don't get funded. I think that's extremely foolish. It seems to me that <clears throat> our approach is just entirely wrong. We, we also don't care much for rare diseases. Um, but you know, these are all, you know, if you understand the basis of any disease, you understand all sorts of stuff you never imagined you were gonna learn. These are all literally natural experiments. And yet we leave some of them under-investigated, under-funded. We, we leave good ideas unpursued. What would it cost for us to decide we weren't gonna do that anymore? That we were going to support the investigation of every good hypothesis. And we were gonna take a big stake in it. And we we're gonna make sure the product uh, uh, advanced the public interest, but still we were gonna do that. Boy, can you imagine how quickly we would advance? And just think of what we have learned in the last nine months. Uh, remember what we learned uh, in the 1980s from AIDS. We, you know, people thought reverse transcriptase was a joke. Okay, it exists, but you know, so what? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, we didn't, nobody knew the difference between CD4 and CD8 cells. You know, it's just ridiculous. And think of what we've been learned, what we've learned so far, mostly about the amazing, miraculous, typically ignored or disrespected innate immune system the one that takes care of the viruses that sneak in the sides of your mask and make sure you never get sick. It's the innate system that, that saves children. They don't have much of the adaptive system because they haven't experienced it. They, they haven't been infected by so many things. But the innate system just works beautifully. And then, you know, the, the immune system we're coming to recognize isn't underdeveloped and then it doesn't become incompetent. No, no, no. It matures in a way that in an evolutionary sense makes sense. At any rate, so I would I would suggest that if we yet ever get to a place politically where we can begin talking to each other about who we really want to be, then I would suggest having a very bold, very big, very expensive, and very profitable approach to the life sciences and say, look, if you've got a good idea, it's supported and we will build the labs to do this. This would be a gift to ourselves and to the world and we would be very proud of it. And you can argue on the humanitarian, the political, and the economic on every single level. And 
when you look at the Federal Reserve with Ben Bernanke and with current Jerome Powell, I mean, they just released seven trillion dollars into the banking system to recapitalize a lot of these banks and corporations. Now that imagine if we were putting five hundred billion on investments in research for horizon technologies of biomedical and biosciences. And that return on investment, you, you can almost start seeing an Apollo type yeah. uh, moonshot return on investment 10 to one in, in discovering new idea and going after even the rare disease, as you said, we need to develop new tools that may, that may not even exist right now. New, different, different science. And that's also a capital goods export industry on top of bringing in, uh, reducing human suffering going into the future. So there's just so many different levels upon that you can build it upon. Right. And, you know, I, I do think that there is an issue with, uh, our debt at 27 trillion, but it's, uh, you know, it, it is based on the U S being a reserve currency since 1945, Bretton Woods. Right. Uh, and it does require the confidence of international markets to continue borrowing, uh, buying treasury bonds. But my concern is we're going to go into the next four years and all the people who didn't care about deficits and debt are going to start getting austerity minded like they did in 2009, 2010, saying we have to cut, 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 which never works. It always contracts the economy. And what we need to do is grow our economy from 20 trillion to 40 trillion. But based on things of actual substance like life science research, and that actually advances progress for, for humans everywhere and for, for the future. So. I would love to see something like that. If there, there's any campaign going on with that, please let me know. I want to join, join up on that. So in, in closing, uh, looking into the future of life, life sciences, where do you see opportunity and hope? Uh, well, in many places, uh, basic science, applied science, it's all the same science, really. If you're going to ask me what's, what's my version of the famous advice in the graduate plastics, right? Um, I would say signaling. Uh, signaling between cells, among cells, uh, turning genes on, turning them off, uh, 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 you know, uh, telling a cancerous cell, why don't you just grow up and mature, why don't you just behave yourself? Uh, and being able to um, persuade the immune system when it gets really angry uh, to uh, take a time out. This is all signaling. And I mean, you know, there are, and there are diseases like, like uh, multiple myeloma that's basically a malignancy caused by abnormal signaling among cells. Well, this is, probably the case um, almost everywhere. So we, we know a lot about this. It's very complicated. Uh, it, you know, it produces very confusing wall charts because nature doesn't care if we're confused. It's, it doesn't care at all. So it's as complex as it is. That's not to say it's, it's complex as it needs to be. It doesn't think it needs to be anything. It just is. It's what's developed. So it's, it's very complex. And we do have a tendency to put pieces of it in little boxes and separate them. 
uh, for instance, the innate immune system and the adaptive. Well, if you, if you think back to that, those data from Japan, the only way to get there is if the innate immune system, the interferon system, for instance, which is also a signaler, at some point to say to its buddies, its cousins in the adaptive system, the plasma cells, you know, to say, you know, we've been seeing a lot of this virus and, you know, it's, we got it under control, but uh, you may want to take a look at this because there you had people with high levels of neutralizing antibodies with no record of illness at all. Where'd they get it? Well, they probably got it because these two different immune systems don't think of themselves as being different and they pass the ball back and forth all the time. We're the ones, us humans, we, we name things. That's what humans do, you know? We name things, we put them in boxes, we stick the boxes in our heads. There aren't any boxes in nature. I really appreciate that more than you know. I mean, that in some conceptual paradigm just shifted in my own head of, of really kind of almost bringing it to electricity being between particles and waves. And we use the Aristotelian classification right. system of binary one right. or the other. And right. the system is much more dynamic than that. And, mm -hmm. and just the concept of signaling with, and to be able to unlock that, uh, I think, is an amazing exploration that uh, we should put resources behind. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time, Rob. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you very much. You're welcome.